I could be the driver and articulate lorry. I could be a poet, I wouldn't need to worry. I could be a teacher in a classroom full of scholars. I could be the sergeant in a squadron full of wallers. What a waste. Hi and welcome to the Verity Love Poetry Podcast. I'm podcast editor Alice Allen. In this episode, we join editor Michelle Seminara at the 2019 Queensland Poetry Festival. Michelle was part of a panel with poet Andy Jackson and Disrupt Project editors Gail Sabot and Amanda Tink for a discussion titled Disrupting the Ableist Narrative. The name of our panel, Disrupting the Ableist Narrative, we were talking about this with a, over a coffee and uh, it could be also called Disrupting the Disablest Narrative because often these two terms are used um, sort of you know, interchangeably, although there are some you know, subtle differences in usage. But um, I was wondering, Gail, if you could uh, kick us off by just explaining if people aren't aware of what ableism or disablism refers to. Uh, I use disabilism as um, I have an impairment, but I'm disabled by various factors um, in society. So I use disabilism, disabled as a verb. I am disabled by various things. Um, it, it doesn't mean that um, in having an impairment that I don't have various difficulties, but my main difficulties are social and economic. So the word disabled doesn't refer, refer to my medical condition, but to social and economic environment. So disabledism is the prejudice and bias that I may meet in my everyday world. So in terms of um, what we can call the disabledist or ableist narrative, what, what do you see that as? What, what is the fiction? What are the stories told? Yes, yeah. Um, disabled narrative. Oh, well, firstly, there's the disabledism that many disabled writers face in terms of attending an event. So there's access, the access requirements that is a big one. Um, then in terms of narrative, I would say it's um, negative stereotyping, negative language, um, disabled language and um, metaphors that, um, oh, that's better. Is that better? Yes, that's better. <laughs> okay. Um, um, that's one of them, but that's another, another part of it. But there's also the disabling, um, I'd say, narrative and approach and, um, where, as writers, because... Be, having there are so many impairments, um, so how you experience disablement varies, and within the literature and, and poetry um, area, you will experience various different ways of being disabled. Um, one of the examples that I um, thought of earlier was a poet. Um, a deaf poet, Jamaican-British poet, Raymond Antropus. And he um, has a great poem, um, Dear Hearing World. So he addresses it in a way that um, he says, your judgment has made my syllables disappear. Your magic master trick, trick, hearing world, drowning out the quiet. 
bursting all speech bubbles in my graphic childhood. You are glad to benefit from audio supremacy. I tried hearing people. I tried to love you, but you laughed at my deaf grammar. I used commas, not full stops, because everything I said kept running away. I mulled over long paragraphs because I didn't know what a natural break was, sounded like. You erased what could have been poetry. Strike that out. You erased what could have always been poetry. So that's a very clear description of what a disabled narrative can do. Dis disabling narrative. Yes, disabling narrative. Um, Andy, I wanted to just uh, ask you, how do you think that disabledism has shaped poetry? Oh, I think so. it's a... There's something very interesting to me about disability in that it is, um, and people have said it's quite it's everywhere and nowhere. So um, we, if you believe the statistics, perhaps one in ten, perhaps one in five people are disabled. So therefore, if you consider all family and friends, you know everybody is touched by it on some level. But somehow, uh, if you wanted to look into uh, who are the disabled writers out there, it's, it can be a real struggle to find them. Uh, less so now. So I find, I find that is really interesting. So it doesn't mean that people have not identified as disabled through recent history, or does it mean that disabled writers haven't been able to be published? And I think it's a little bit of both. So I think, in a way, uh, for me, what I'm interested in is looking at the writing that already exists and saying, well, actually, maybe there is something about that that has a disabled aesthetic, uh, or the authors themselves are disabled and not necessarily you know, overtly talking about it. But the other side of it is, yeah, thinking about how, how to get more attention on the writing of disabled people. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think a lot of it is to do with what we think writing is. Part of it is I think we're in a bit of a historical moment where we think that um, you know, the author is dead, uh, the text is sort of liberated and like flying around in the atmosphere, whereas in reality I think it's always connected to bodies. And uh, yeah, it can be embarrassing to do for a lot of work in this field in terms of your PhD, um, talking not just about um, disabledism and poetry, but also um, the critique of poetry and um, how different uh, poets, uh, disabled poets, have been, um, yeah, been critiqued over over time, and whether whether people are taking into account and how they're taking into account the way their disability appears and informs their writing. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I can just turn this around. Right, right. Okay. Um, uh, so I guess kind of um, following up on um, what Gail said and what Andy said too um, about disabledism. So there's this, there's these two kind of 
ways that it happens and that some of it is the, is the direct um, prejudice that we encounter every day. And the other part is the, the absences within history. So um, the, the work that, that I've been doing, um, whenever, I've, whenever I've been talking to, to people about that, so saying, um, yeah, I'm, I've been uh, studying how Henry Lawson writes um, and he's deaf, and I've been studying how Les Murray writes and he's autistic. Um, people are always surprised to, to hear those things. And I think this is the, the real um, insidious side of disabilism, which is that our, um, the, the fact that um, so many famous Australian writers are disabled um, is completely erased from history. And, and I think what that then means is that um, other people um, who have those same impairments or just disability in general um, then don't know that other people have gone before them. Um, so just to, to take the example of Les Murray, who's been writing since, um, I think his first book was 1965-ish, uh, something like that. Um, his first poem about being autistic was written in 1972. Um, he um, has had a number of other poems where he's talked about being autistic, one which is completely about being autistic, which he wrote in 2006. Um, and despite that, he is never ever talked about as an autistic poet. Um, and again, the the um, incredibly inventive metaphors that he uses, which very much come from an autistic way of thinking. Um, again, people would say, oh, he has all these amazing metaphors. He's such an incredible writer, and they never say why. Um, so I think that, that that's, that's a really um, under-acknowledged part of, of disabilism. And... Um, what it does is, is take away from disabled people and, in fact, the, the community in general, um, the really inventive um, ways that disabled people contribute to writing and, in general, and poetry in particular. Yeah, I think that's um, such an important thing for people to hear because it's not just what what is said, it's what's not said, it's the you know, erasure or the you know, absence of acknowledgement. You know, um, we all probably know Les Murray passed away recently and there was very little in the media um, about, um, I don't know if people are, feel uncomfortable to bring it up or they're not sure what to say. But Most people just ignore it completely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, yeah. So that brings me to the idea of... Um, you know, you're speaking about that he is, um, you know, being autistic, he has this amazing and different way of looking at the world and it, and it comes through in his poetry and this incredible imagery and metaphor. What, um, what do you see as the, as the um, disabled aesthetic? You know, what, what are some hallmarks of that? What, what are the, the positives and the, the amazing things that people have seen? Um, okay, uh, I guess... The first thing to say about disabled aesthetics is that, like 
any community. There's a huge range of things, partly influenced by um, that person's particular um, embodiment, including their impairment. Um, but then I think there are also some some general things that come from the experience of of being a disabled person and um, and always having to confront um, everyday prejudices that you run into. Um, I think that at least in the in the poets that I've studied. Um, formally and informally um, for different reasons. So, for example, um, Henry Lawson being being deaf and paying much more attention to the detail of the world um, because his vision is so, so tuned in to that. Um, or because um, Les Murray, um, the uh, way of of thinking that, that comes from autism, again, focuses on detail. I think for various reasons, disabled people have um, a lot of reasons to, to focus on detail um, that non-disabled people just um, don't even notice. And I think that's one of the things that, that really comes through in disabled poetry. Um, I think another um, is, is centering the poetry on um, a an unusual experience of the world or a non-typical experience of the world. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I think there's heaps of others. Oh, there's, yeah, there's so many. <laughs> it's not an essential. Um, it's not essentialist. Mm -hmm. That's what. Um, it's very. It's varied, as you were saying, Amanda. I think it also may affect. Um, there's a conscious writing against disabledism and there's a conscious writing of the way we experience the world. But there may also be other influences and unconscious, more unconscious writing which affects rhythm, pace, etc. The, 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 the usual writing tools. Um, you know, it may be that somebody who moves, I was speaking of this earlier, somebody who moves more slowly through the world will have a very different aesthetic than... than the average person who moves quite fast, for example, or in my case, I, um, if I'm walking and not on my scooter, I'm constantly feeling the walls and rails and every grotty thing that there is, and I feel chewing gum under ledges, and so there's a whole different texture and that will, I imagine, may influence my aesthetic, but... So it's more tactile. It well. could be. It could be. But this needs study. That's what we was also saying earlier. I think we need far more um, deep, radical analysis of disabled poetry and writing. Which brings me to you, Andy, because this is actually what you're studying at the moment. Yes. Um, partly, um, yeah, well, I was just saying before, too, that I find you could spend your whole life kind of trying to research and analyze that understand what's been happening in the poetry world. Um, one of the things I uh, was really influenced by uh, a couple of years ago was a book I read by disability theorist Tobin Siebens, who wrote, uh, I'm pretty sure it was called Disability Aesthetics. Yep. Um, and he, that book was about visual arts. And his idea was that really modern art and contemporary art is 
totally about um, brokenness and embodiment and difference, deformity, um, even though it's not talked about. So that value, the, the vulnerable human, the broken human, the disadvantage, that's a really, really central theme in contemporary art. And I also think it's a really central theme, not perhaps so much in the themes and topics of poetry, but in the form. So in the free verse era, you know, uh, strange and unusual shapes are important. Um, fractured speech is important. Um, disorientation, uncertainty, uh, brokenness is all very, very important. So, um, yeah, even just the idea that, you know, uh, the poem itself is supposedly potentially defined by having line breaks and broke uh, and break is such a powerful um, metaphor for what it needs to be in a body. So I think, yeah, there's a lot to talk about it. I think uh, the, the poems, uh, poetry is a really interesting space to explore diversity of the body. Do you think there's something uh, particular about poetry? Um, I'm thinking in terms of it's often, you know, it's, it's easier to be more experimental, not to be bound to a narrative, to break and fragment and muck around with form. Is there something particular to poetry? Those sort of things make it more um, attuned to disrupting the disabled narrative? I think so, but I'm, I'm a poet, so I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, look, I think for all those reasons, there are these um, it's just an incredibly intimate space, and I think when you're reading a poem, you're very close to a, a voice or a body or both. And I think it's very—it's a way in which you sort of try on the experience of another person, and you always realise that it doesn't quite fit you either. So there's a sense of dislocation, and yeah, I think it's just—I'm um, sure that happens in other forms. Ideas, and it's the little bit better. This is called What I Have Under My Shirt. 
a list of potential answers to the question, what I have on my shirt, and I think uh, some of them are true. A speed hump. Your eyes must slow down approaching. A stockpile of questions spat from a distance. Bone, muscle, blood, marrow, sinew, viscera, bile, love, irony, all the humors. A backpack. I've been asked. There was a story behind that I can tell you if you like. Immense wealth, which I can only share with you if you already have it. Air, breath, hell. A free verse poem, so lacking in musicality and image that really you regret asking, but it's too late. That raw silence. The shape of my father. Irretrievable memories. Your shadow. Alternate future. Dorian Gray. Another shirt. And underneath, a third shirt. Yes, infinite shirts. No, we do not store water in our humps. They are reservoirs of fatty tissue. We have developed many physiological tricks for surviving in places like this. Nothing. Not even whiteness. Chosen people, you could change it if you wanted. I was born misfit in parentheses. Yes, um, just a, I uh, received a um, writing New South Wales grant, a science, scientist and writer, I'm not sure. So I started really delving into science, it's what I wanted to do, but also now applying it to all kinds of writing. So that has influenced this poem. I was born misfit. A door creaked open from a watery room. I flowed, floated. This me that was born. My chromosomes containing thousands of genes, some with alleles, mutations, normal to our species, although many pretend that's not the case. Curled wet against naked breasts, held by a hand that smelled wispy as wood fire smoke and nervous love. My lips brushed hungry over skin, my eyes unaccustomed to the light. One blue eye allele from father, one golden eye allele from mother. Just one copy of the gene was all that was needed to form my golden eyes, like witches' familiars, like an owl or a Burmese cat. I don't mind because golden eyes see through darkness and smell fear. Heady, pungent and strangely sweet, like a carpet of mouldering apples piling brown under an apple tree. Fear shines mauve in a human belly or a dog's chest. Some beings hold their fear in odd places, like elbow, antenna, tip of fin. 
Fear of the unknown is royal reddish purple. Fear based on pure hate is dark, dark purple, almost a lackluster black. My misfit phenotype attracts dark purple fear based on hate. Not my golden eyes, but a mutation on chromosome 4Q35. Autosomal dominant, 50-50 chance. One copy of the gene was all that was needed. Father's allele with only 8D4Z4 repeats. Dominated mother's non-misfit allele. I am a misfit with muscular weakness, dystrophy of the facial muscles, the shoulder and hip girdles, the distal lower extremity muscles, and I have wings, the same texture, the same dark grey as my skin. They unfurl like the wings of a bat, though I don't have muscle to fly. I glide. The ridge lifts of the eastern forest slopes or over the flatlands where cumulus clouds loom large and thermals circle upwards. There is danger in the open. It's difficult to disappear unless the grass grows long. Then I lay low, curl my body up tight. I am safer camouflaged within the forest, the city too. Wrapped in my wings among the granite and concrete shadows of buildings, I'm almost invisible. In the city, I stretch my wings slightly to catch a breeze and use wheels to roll along the pavement. My wings are soft and flexible, control my speed, steer, keep me warm and dry or cool. They caress and care for my golden-eyed child who does not have wings. Neither does her father. 50-50 chance, maybe our future children will glide. Then, like me, they will learn to conceal themselves from those whose bellies are distended with the stench of dark purple fear. Like me, they will learn, when necessary, to prepare to fight, to release the claw at the tip of their left wing to its sharpest length. So this is um, this is written by a, a U.S. disabled poet. It's probably one of the most famous um, disabled pride poems, and um, it's really exciting to have the opportunity to read it for you today. Um, so it's called "I Am Not One of That," and it's by Cheryl Morey Wade. I am not one of the physically challenged. I am a sock in the eye with gnarled fist. I'm a French kiss with a cleft tongue. I am orthopedic sues sewn on the last of your fears. I am not one of the differently abled. 
I'm an epitaph for a million imperfect babies left untreated. I'm an icon carved from bones in a mass grave at Turgarten, Germany. I am withered legs hidden with a blanket. I am not one of the able disabled. I am a black panther with green eyes and scars like a picket fence. I am pink lace panties teasing a stub of milk white thigh. I'm the evil eye. I am the first cell divided. I am mud that talks. I'm Eve. I'm Callie. I'm the mountain that never moves. I've been here forever. I'll be here forever. I'm the gimp. I'm the cripple. I'm the crazy lady. I'm the woman with juice. Be a doctor with poetries and bruises. I could be a writer with a growing reputation. I could be the ticket man and full of all my station. What a waste. It's been so lovely to get to spend some time with you all. Um, while we've been up here, and we're but one of the things that I've noticed is, um, yeah, how hard stuff can be, and how how patient you often have to be if you're in a wheelchair or if you need someone to help you get somewhere. You know, um, it's not easy. How, how, uh, start with you, Andy, how, how, how is it having to always um, advocate for yourself and others and being in that position just by nature of being in your body? Yeah, look, it's interesting. Uh, someone, uh, I think a man I mentioned earlier, I think I Disability is a category, but there are so many different kinds of experience within that, and uh, my experience is quite different. Like, I feel being in public is difficult, not so much because of the physical barriers, but because of certain assumptions that are made about different kinds of embodiment. Um, so, that's something that's different, so in different kinds of environments, different kinds you know, respond to you differently. So it's an unpredictable thing. Uh, it, it has a certain kind of emotional and psychic weight that you just carry around all the time. So that's difficult. I think probably everyone who's disabled has some kind of experience of that. Um, but um, I don't necessarily, because you know, I don't have those issues of access so much in terms of um, the built environment or negotiating spaces. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm aware of my disadvantage and I'm aware of my advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more negotiating other people. Yeah, which is almost always having something that you have to do by yourself and being your own person. Mm. Like it's, it's really a situation where you have to you know, address someone's uh, projects or you know, Yeah, so I think it's a very different problem. Yeah. What about you, Gail? Oh, um, yes, it, it can be difficult. Um, but uh, I think there's a floating that I do <laughs> tend to float, and um, I draw from it to work with other disabled writers and um, encourage those writers to 
Um, Firstly, identify their access requirements and seek assistance where necessary to help them write um, and help you write because I'm assuming there are disabled people in our audience. Um, and um, also that be comfortable in our bodies despite what goes on outside. Be comfortable and draw from that to um, basically question the normal um, model of what a human being is and to delve into the much broader, deeper diversity of what it is to be human. Yeah, I'm just, I think it just makes me remember too that there's a kind of um, when you see that the world rests on the assumption of able-bodiedness, whiteness, male, etc., when you get insight into that, it's kind of awful, but it's also fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's something that, that really fuels writing and it fuels, hopefully, solidarity with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be really positive, generative thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amanda, how's it for you um, being put into that position? Just walking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember listening to um, Kurt Fernley, there, uh, who's one of the um, one of Australia's probably most famous Paralympians being interviewed on a podcast a few years ago, and um, he was complaining about some of this this stuff and um and the host said to him oh but you know people are very well intentioned and he said no actually sometimes people are just assholes <laughs> and i think that like the, the the experience of being disabled often is that a lot of people get to see how um other people are kind of average um you know just sort of in an ordinary way, whereas I think as a disabled person you get to experience the best and the worst of other people. Um, I find it fascinating, like, everybody talking about how, how difficult and how mean Twitter is these days, when, you know, I feel like, oh, you know, actually, it's so much better than the real world in a lot of ways. Because um, you have this, you, you know, you still get all of the, oh, you know, you shouldn't have been born, you know, um, hopefully you won't have children, you know, all of those sorts of things that um, everyday non-disabled people say. Um, but then you also have this wonderful community um, of, um, of people who have... Um, been able to um, work with their prejudices a bit, um, as well as non-disabled people, and you have these connections all over the world. Mm. That's another thing, Michelle. I um, I get the opportunity to meet strangers and hold their arm mm. to cross roads and all that. So it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a certain amount of yes. intimacy yeah. that I wouldn't have otherwise. So that's, that's another true. positive yeah. side. Yeah. yeah. It's, there's a, a different connection and a more authentic connection yeah. with people. Yeah.
Um, so just a comment to follow on from Amanda's point about writers with disability having their disability erased, which I thought I should mention because we're in the Judith Wright Centre and I'm a writer and academic and I've just finished an essay on Judith Wright and in the Australian Literature Database, which is a collection of all critical material that's been written about um, writers, there are about 400 pieces of criticism relating to Judith Wright as a writer, but there were two relating to the fact that she was deaf. And of them, only one referred to her condition in the sense of how it meant that she wrote a lot of letters um, because it was hard for her to get on the phone. And the other one was just a paragraph in, um, in an essay. Um, but her deafness fundamentally shaped her poetics in that she often wrote about the limits of language. And if you're a deaf person, you understand that there are limits because there are always conversations that you can't hear. And she was also aware of conversations happening in the other than human world. And again, that came from her deafness because she could see conversations but couldn't access them. But again, that, that the way that her disability interacted with her poetics is not mm -hmm. It's just, it seems crazy, like there is a huge, I know you guys are in, in this field of study, but you would never consider these days writing about, say, a female poet without taking into a fact the fact that she was in a female body or a, a person of colour and they're in a, a coloured body and how that interacts with their poetics or whatever, other source of creativity. And yet, as you say, it's usually completely unconsidered in terms of um, disabled or creative people. Did you, I'm sure you guys have heaps to say, and he's going to say. Yeah, no, I think that's, I don't know, and of course, that's how it is, the whole story of it feels very much like there is someone there, some behind that changing. There are more um, uh, people that are in the space, and more disabled writers kind of starting to talk about it. Um, of course, it's very precarious because, you know, um, yeah, for a lot of reasons, mostly because of reasons, it's very hard to treat. Um, I I would just say there's there's just so much more to to be uncovered in Australian literature as far as disabled poets go, and um, like I was saying early on, that's a piece of information which has been um, erased from how people understand um, so many of our of our poets. Um, you know, creative writers in general, but poets in particular, um, and and so many of them um, get written off. Um, I guess particularly the ones that that I'm studying, so they're they're in my head as as just being um, you know white heterosexual males, and Australian literature needs to. Um, um, start to consider the fact that, that actually there's a lot more complexity um, to some of these people um, and it, it adds um, such um, an incredibly vibrant dimension to their creativity. So how do we start doing that, Gail? You're part of a fabulous organisation, Outlandish Arts, that is all about 
um, supporting um, disabled creatives of all types um, to, to, to get their work out there? What, what needs to happen? Hmm. Well, funding obviously is a big question, big difficulty. So we're just starting to look at um, going and being a startup, <laughs> which is really going into a whole other area that arts doesn't usually go into. Um, and we're also looking at technology um, because of that's where the startup kind of area is situated. So it also means that we may be able, we can create software and um, use um, technology to not only um, create platforms for our artists but um, create access so that they can write across geographical space, they can um, have readers, they can have various things for all kinds of impairments, not all kinds but a lot of impairments. Um, that's one of the ways. Just on the, the topic of um, in, impairments and the ones that are kind of culturally recognised and the ones that aren't, because um, I think there's a few interesting um, dimensions to this. Um, and I'm speaking as, as someone who is blinded and also has a brain injury from concussion. Um, that I often have the experience of people only recognising um, one of the impairments that I have. Um, and I, I have found um, creative writing of all kinds, but especially poetry, is a way that... Um, people with all kinds of impairments can narrate ourselves back into um, history and to, to take up space. Um, uh, the, the brain injury community has a huge um, kind of capacity or interest to do this, which um, was one of the things that um, was kind of thrilling um, when I joined it a couple of years ago. Um, and then uh, the last point that I wanted to, to make too is um, there are, just to, to add the cup to the couple that we've talked about, um, there are a few um, other places, uh, particularly in the US, so there's um, an online journal called Word Gathering. Um, there's also another one whose name escapes me at the moment, but there's the Disability Literature Consortium in the US, and that's a collection of about seven different um, disability-specific um, online writing journals, so I would really encourage you to check those out as well. There's one more, just one more. Disability Arts Online in, yeah. in the UK, excellent. I was hoping that we could perhaps finish with one more poem from you, Andy. I had mutual obligation tagged out, but I reckon you just read whatever you like. No, no, I think, <laughs> I think that it's actually cool about to finish. Um, I wrote this because I was uh, involved in a project um, where ten poets were given ten abstractions, ten words that we had to write from. One of them was obligation. And so immediately I thought of mutual obligation. Um, that ridiculous awful uh, bureaucratic political idea that you're not entitled to be supported you have to 
was to support. And I read many things. Life itself is, is, you know, is a kind of work. So this mutual obligation. The institutions hollowed out. You're cornered by an idea of independence, race, stress, and diagnosis. Work, the only rope thrown into the hole. Some of those employed do well, seem intact, while others are rushed to emergency, missing a limb or a mind, left with therapy, paperwork. Your body employs you in the labor of bone pain and flesh hurt, the small steps through the pharmaceutical minefield, the work of falling to earth, the tenure of trying to do no harm to yourself, the painstaking translations of the body's millions of sparks, the work of being human, on call to climb precarious impairment tables to prove just how incapable you are, and yet how able and willing. You do want to work, don't you? Still, this hacking through forests of symptoms and prescriptions, desperate to lie down in a sunlit clearing, to rest, to be heard, and to be held in the mutual obligation of shared air, where the work consists of listening to each other's troubled breathing with no solution to offer but this.